I want to ask and attempt to answer a simple question this morning, and that is simply this. Can anything good come of suffering? Can any good come of suffering? Uh, I am not foolish enough to think that I can answer that completely in every nuance this morning, but I want to see what the Bible has to say about this very important subject, because while it generates lots of questions, and, and one of the questions that always comes up when we personally are on the end of going through a difficulty or a trial or suffering is, is, is the question, why? And for a faith-based people, uh, knowing the answer, why, even though we ask the question, is not as important as our walking by faith and not by sight. And our ability to trust in the goodness of our God and Savior. Beauty for ashes might be, you know, the simplicity of, of the answer to this question. And, and this is what we're talking about. That God can take out of the ashes of our life, out of the, out of the crash and burn experiences of our life, and make something beautiful out of it. God can take those places where our dreams have turned to, to, to dust or turned to ash, and he can make something absolutely beautiful out of it. That, this is the nature of the God in whom we serve. Last week, I said that the essence of the ministry of Jesus can be summed up in his public uh, coming out in his mission statement. He said, the Spirit of the Lord's upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to open prison doors, to give recovery of sight to the blind. And in that portion of Scripture from Isaiah 61, Isaiah describes the messianic nature of the ministry of the Messiah and that he will give beauty for ashes. He will give the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. He will comfort those that mourn. Th this is the characteristics of, of the nature of the ministry of Jesus and of God the Father. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen my Father. I and my Father are one. This is what God does. He takes, he takes the, the broken places, the, the wilderness places, and he makes it, well, he, he makes it a stream in the, in the desert. He, he makes it blossom like a rose. He, he can take the, the waste places and make it something beautiful. From Genesis to Revelation, there's one great theme that runs throughout the entire Bible, and, and that is the message of restoration, that God is all about bringing about a restoration of all things until ultimately the final ultimate revelation or, or restoration is the creation of a new heaven and a new earth where there is no sorrow and there is no pain and there is no sickness and there is no death. And so we're looking this morning at the nature of God, that he takes the, the ashes of our life and he turns them into areas of beauty. Ashes are a symbol, we said last week, of sorrow, loss, and pain. So in this series, we're going to see that when we've hit rock bottom, when we've crashed and burned, God does what God does best. Somebody said that the difference between a recession and the Great Depression is, can be defined like this. A recession is when your next-door neighbor loses his job. But the Great Depression is when you lose your job. In other words, 
The definition depends on how it affects you in a personal way. One of the most complex stories in the Bible is the story about the man whose name is Job. And the mystery is, is more than how come his name is pronounced Job when it's spelt like Job? And how come the creator of Apple, his name isn't Steve Jobs, it's Steve Job? Uh, rather, the other way around, messed that up. But I want you to know that it's more than the mystery of his name. It's, it's the mystery of his life and, and what he endured and, and all that this man suffered. And when we try to wrap our minds around everything that this guy has gone through, you know, we, we, we're really blown away by how much one person has suffered. But what I want you to do this morning is I don't want you to come to the conclusion that somehow Job was reaping what he sowed, that somehow Job was being punished for the wrongdoing in his life. In fact, as a teacher of Scripture, I, it just drives me nuts that there are some who come to this erroneous conclusion that Job is suffering as a result of either his self-righteousness, his fearfulness, or his lack of faith. And we even hear that today in, in a lot of different circles, that the reason why you're going through this terrible experience is because you don't have enough faith. That's a terrible judgment for which Job's so-called friends, comforters, were rebuked by the Lord, who said, you've not answered correctly as my servant Job has. And those guys were in trouble, by the way, and I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. But, but the Bible in both the Old Testament and New Testament honors the integrity and the character of Job. First, I want to look at the book of James and see what James has to say about Job. And, and, and James is all about trials and adversity and temptations and how to bear up underneath it and how to endure and come through, you know, successfully. So James 5 verse 10 says this, as an example, he says, brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Now we know that the prophets suffered persecution because of righteousness sake. And so Job is going to fall into that same category as we see in just a moment. Verse 11 says, As you know, we considered blessed those who have persevered. And then he says, You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about, that the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. I, I think that James accomplishes several things in this, just a few short verses and, and, and one of them, he, he mentions Job among the prophets. And he mentions Job first among the prophets. Now, he could have mentioned Moses. He could have mentioned David. He could have, he could have mentioned Jeremiah. Uh, any of the prophets th that had literally physically suffered as a result of righteousness. But instead, he mentions Job first in order. Maybe because, probably, because Job is probably one of the oldest books in the Bible. Believed to have been written by Moses. When Moses was in Midian, he probably heard about this, this uh, wealthy sheik who had suffered so much at the hands, you know, uh, of, of his experiences, you know. And the other reason maybe is because of the intensity of just how much suffering was in this man's life. But the other thing I think that James accomplishes is to remind his readers and us that when, that when you 
that, that when you're going through trials and difficulties, and that is to remember the outcome that the Lord is compassionate and the Lord is merciful. Uh, my wife, Kathy, I thought you were going to be upstairs in the nursery, so I, I didn't know you were sitting right here, but uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit about her. You know, she is the most compassionate person that I know in, in this world. I mean, she, she is tenderhearted. Uh, I used to tease her about, you know, crying at Burger King and McDonald commercials, which is true. You know, but, but she is empathetic and she, she sympathizes with people who are hurting. She hates to hear about somebody who is suffering. And you know, God hates suffering as well. By comparison, I, I would say that Kathy has like, a, like, like my 16 by 32 pool full of compassion. But by comparison to God, God's compassion is infinite. It's like the measureless oceans of the earth. And that's one of the things that we need to remember when we find ourselves in the midst of sorrow and trial, because I tell you what, it's going to happen. You're going to bury somebody that you love, whether it's a parent or whether it's a brother or sister. You're going to experience that. No one goes through this life without experiencing some degree and some measure of sorrow. The other place outside of the book of Job itself where it talks about the integrity of Job is in the book of Ezekiel. And I want to point that out. But I, I want to just say this first about Job. Job was just like us. He was born with a sinful nature. He, he needed a Savior just like you and I need a Savior. His righteousness could not save him, though, though God says about him in Scripture that he was a blameless and an upright man, that, that he was a devout follower of God. But one of the great verses that comes out of the book of Job is found in the 19th chapter where Job says, I know my Redeemer lives and that I shall see him in the end face to face. I'm going to see God face to face. He knew that God was his Redeemer. And he believed in the resurrection. But what I want you to, to see is this that while there was only one perfect man, the man Christ Jesus, who was without the nature of sin, he is the one that we need as our Savior. But I, I just want to say this in defense of Job's character that's been maligned by assumptions, that somehow he, it was because he didn't have enough faith or somehow it was because he was, he was fearful that he opened the door to all of these things that happened in his life. I, I don't think the Bible says that at all. So look at with, with me to Ezekiel chapter 14. And this is said about Job. Now, centuries later, right? It says, the word of the Lord came to me, that is to Ezekiel, son of man, if a nation sins against me by being unfaithful and I stretch out my hand against it to cut it off, its food supply and send famine upon it and kill its men and animals, even if these three Men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it. They could save only themselves, but not by their righteousness, declares the sovereign Lord. In other words, they could only save themselves, but not the city. These men were known for their intercession. Noah found grace in the sight of the Lord. And because of that, was instrumentally used by God for the saving of the human race. 
Daniel, was the, the Bible says, was a man in whom was an excellent spirit. The only fault that could be found in Daniel's life was concerning his devotion to God. Imagine that. That the only fault that you could find in a person's life is his dedication to God. That's what his enemies said. And Job. Job is esteemed here because of his ability to intercede. I got a great uh, quote from Charles Spurgeon. He said this, he says, I don't know for which I could bless God most, for my sorrows or for my joys. I don't know for which I could bless God most, for my sorrows or my joys. We really, he says, have nothing to complain about. Even our disappointments will yet be cause for praise. Even our sorrows, our disappointments, will yet be cause for for praise. Let me ask you a question. What do you see? Say that? A little bit more specific. Okay. It's a blank piece of paper. If I gave you a magnifying glass, I could let you see that in the top right-hand corner, I place there very strategically a tiny little dot. So it's not a blank piece of paper. That little dot represents human history in an ocean of eternity. And what the Bible teaches is that this light affliction of this present age is not worthy to be compared with the glory that awaits us. For God is at work even in these afflictions to bring about something beautiful out of the ashes of our experiences. Hard times can make men strong. Soft times, easy times, have a tendency of making men weak. People who have had a charmed life are often very shallow. But people who have had a difficult life sometimes can arise out of that difficulty and become strong and become great. Adversity doesn't hold a good person down. Adversity only is an opportunity to overcome. I, I, I love the, the TV program uh, Chopped, one of my favorite shows. Even my grandkids love it, you know. Uh, it's a competition, four chefs competing with three different uh, levels of, of, of dishes, appetizer, main course, and, and dessert. By the time they get to the dessert, there's only two chefs left competing. And one of the things that's often said when their dessert is presented, and they usually have these mysterious, you know, ingredients that they've kind of really hard to kind of make into a dessert. One of the things that they often say is it's, it's too sweet or it's not sweet enough. That what the judges are often looking for is to, 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 to make something that's pleasing is a balance between between bitter and sweet, between tart and sweet. Because somehow the bitter brings out the, the sweetness in a, way that is not, in a way that is not sickening. You know, the Bible says that too much honey is not good. Too much sweetness can make one sick. Our experiences in this life, they're not all bitter and they're not all sweet. There's a mixture. And because of that mixture, we know that God is at work bringing about 
for our good and for his glory, even in the midst of what the enemy means for evil, what Satan means for harm. You know, I sometimes joke around, especially with my grandkids. I tell them, I never met a potato I didn't like, you know? Uh, you remember the scene, if you saw the movie Forrest Gump, Forrest Gump was, is with Bubba, and they're on the bus, and they're talking about shrimp business and how, how many different ways you can make shrimp, you know? You got shrimp scampi and, and shrimp cocktail and on and on. That's the way I feel about potatoes, you know? I mean, I love potatoes, fried potatoes, baked potatoes, hash brown potatoes. When I, when I was growing up, I didn't know there was whipped potatoes. I just thought there was smashed potatoes because we had a big pot and the mom put the potatoes in the pot and she asked me to smash the potatoes. That's the, that's, we didn't have one of those electric things in my family until we became successful in life. No, just kidding. <laughs> you know, but, but the reason why I think I have potatoes in my DNA is because that's all my parents could afford to eat during what was called the Great Depression. Some of your parents went through, maybe grandparents went through the Great Depression. And the Great Depression didn't destroy them. The Great Depression really only made them stronger. The, the hardship of the 30s really prepared them for the trouble the world experienced in the 40s in the World War II. You know, there's a reason why they're called, the, referred to as the great generation. It's because they weren't destroyed by the obstacles that came into their life. They were made better. Listen, no one would have ever heard about this Middle Eastern sheik who was the wealthiest man in the world at the time had he not gone through such incredible suffering and come out the other side with such amazing confidence and unshakable trust and faith in God. In one of the chapters, I believe it's chapter 23, Job says, even though he kill me, yet will I praise him. Listen, we would have never heard about Azariah, Hananiah, and Mishael, better known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, had they not been cast into a fiery furnace. We would have never known that there was a fourth man, one who appeared like unto the Son of God, had they not been cast into that fiery furnace to discover that God comes to meet us in our weakness with strength, and he comes in the midst of our submission to give us joy, and he comes to give us rest in the midst of trusting. So we want to look a little bit closer this morning at Job's experience. So I'm going to be reading uh, most of chapter one of the book of Job. So follow along with me on the screen, if you will. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came with them. Let me just stop here a minute and say, Satan no longer has access to the heaven. My opinion, Satan no longer has the ability to go as he wills into the presence of God. Revelation chapter 12 says that Satan was cast out. And Romans chapter 8 says that there is now therefore no condemnation. There is no one to accuse us before God. Shall God condemn us who has justified us? Shall Christ who died for us and yea, who's risen again from the dead? No, in all these things we're more than... No, he no longer has access. But in this day he did. And verse 7 says, The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? 
And Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and who shuns evil. In the Old Testament, the expression to fear God was equivalent for me to say to you that Job loved God, that he loved God, that he was a devoted follower of God. And verse 9 says, Does Job fear God for nothing, Satan replied? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything that he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Very well, then, everything he has is in your hands But on the man himself, do not lay a finger. There is a limitation to what you can do. The Lord remains the sovereign one who's in control. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And one day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at his oldest brother's house, Messengers came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were were grazing nearby. And the Siberians attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, notice the the strategy that is going on here. While he is yet speaking, another messenger came and said, the fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. And again, while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down upon your camels and carried them off and they put your servants to the sword and I am the only one that's escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, your sons and your daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert, struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them and they are dead. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. This man experiences in one day what 10, 20 men have not experienced in a lifetime. And at this, Job got up. He tore his robe and shaved his head. He fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked came I from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. What I want to point out to you and what I want you to notice is that the design of these horrific events that took place were not God's idea. They were Satan's design and his idea. But God, as we shall see, was overruling what Satan meant for evil to bring about much good. God still maintained complete control. In fact, what Satan sought to achieve, God achieves the very opposite. The very opposite takes place. Instead of cursing God, he blesses God and says, everything I have, really, it's all about grace. 
Job understood the message of grace more than many others do. He understood that everything that he had was a result of God's gift. And if God wanted to take it away, then who am I to say anything? You know, here the amazing thing is, is that Job didn't have the insight that we have. He doesn't have the 2020 perspective of this conversation that's taking place. And in fact, he goes throughout this entire trial, never finding out that Satan is the one who initiated the strategy behind this attack. It's not like at the end of the story, God says, all right, Job, let me just kind of tell you what really was going on here behind the scenes. Doesn't happen. Job maintains, however, his confidence in God and discovers something, not knowing the answer, not having a why, was not important to Job, which is inevitably the question that we all ask when we go through difficult times is why? I mean, we naturally ask that question. And Job was, was, was likewise inquisitive as to, the, as to the why, but came to the conclusion that the why wasn't as important as his ability to simply put his trust in the unseen or invisible God. Job lost everything. He lost his wealth. He lost his family. He lost his reputation. He lost his friends. And in chapter 2, he loses his health. There's a similar conversation that takes place that we won't go into right now. But, but basically, Satan says, you know what? He says, he says, just go ahead and strike his body, and you'll see that he'll curse you to your face. And the Lord says, okay, I'll give you permission. You can touch him, but spare his life. And, and he is, he's, literally, he's literally covered from head to toe with these sores. And he's seen, the scripture says, sitting in a pile of ashes, scraping his sores with pottery. But the Bible says the same thing again. In all this, Job did not sin by what he said. Job did not sin. He did not come to the assumption that God was wrong, that God was unjust, that he was unjustly being punished. I would say round one and round two goes to Job. Round one, TKO, technical knockout. Round two, real knockout. Because from the rest of the story on, we no longer hear about Satan. He's out of the picture. In chapter three, Job's knees begin to buckle. And Job begins to say, in essence, I wish I had never been born. Would that I would have died when I came forth from my mother's womb. And Job because he's not perfect, because he had a sin nature. He, he, he goes through this stuff, but he never, he never really loses his faith or his confidence in God. He never says, why have I lost everything? The thing that bothers Job the most, the thing that is most painful to Job, is where are you, God, in all this? God, why have I been forsaken? You know, the interesting thing is that when Satan said bad things about Job to God, God didn't listen to him. God didn't believe it. But when Satan said bad things about God to you and to me in Adam, we believed it. When Satan said, he doesn't love you for yourself, he's only using you for what he can get out of you. God didn't believe that. 
God says, no, he, he fears me. He loves me. But when Satan said that to us in Adam and Eve, that God is holding back something from us, he, he's only using us, he doesn't really love us, we believe the lie. And the human race has been suspicious of God ever since. But I want you to see something. Centuries later, one who is truly innocent, because Job was only relatively innocent. He wasn't completely or truly innocent. But generations pass and centuries pass, and then one comes forth who was, who was actually innocent who became the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, who was taken from judgment. Everything he had was taken away from him, including his health and including his life itself. Whose biggest problem was not that, the, that I wish I had never been born, but he said, rather, for this cause came I into this world. But the biggest pain that Jesus experienced was Father. Father, why have you forsaken me? Job wasn't really forsaken. I mean, we see God throughout the story. God's overseeing. God's looking at the details of Job's life. And in the end, Job is blessed with, with a double portion of all that he had before. But Jesus Christ was the one who truly was and really was forsaken, who, because of his obedience, God says, I'm going to crush you. I'm going to send you to hell and the grave so that you and I can be highly favored, accepted by God, so that we could never experience that in, our, in, in, in the lack of our obedience, we can come to a place where we can trust in the one who was obedient, who did achieve for us what we could never achieve for ourselves. Jesus is the true and the ultimate innocent sufferer. He's the true Job. So what was God doing in Job's life? God was using the pain to draw Job closer to himself. What does God do in our lives? He uses the negative circumstances in our life to draw us closer to him. Listen, I wouldn't be in the kingdom of God if it wasn't for the fact that God drew me out of troubled waters, that my life was a mess. And in that mess, I turned to God. And how many others can relate the same truth that it wasn't in times of prosperity that we sought God, but it was in times of adversity that we came into a deeper understanding of the gospel. God's drawing us deeper to the place where Job could say, in one of the chapters, Job could say, I've heard of you with the hearing of the ear. I've heard about you, God, but now my eye has seen you. What a difference. How many of you know the comfort that comes in the midst of inexplicable circumstances, you, you know the comfort that comes from knowing God in a personal way. That's priceless. I came across a, it's not a theological statement, it's just a very practical statement that I wanted to share with you. It's written by a, a woman who was born in, in Oxford, England, in the late 1800s, and she died in 1957. Her name was Dorothy Sayers. She was a poet, a playwright. She was a, an author, a translator. But, but I just, I love the down-to-earth kind of, 
you know, practical theology that, that, that she espouses here in this statement. When, when, when talking about people who are complaining about all the suffering that's going on in this world, th- this is what she wrote in response. She says, whatever the reason God chose to make man as he is, limited suffering and subject to sorrows and death, he had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever he is doing in his creation, he's kept his own rules and he's played fair. He can extract nothing from man that he did not extract from from himself. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and a lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, despair, and death. When he was a man, he played the man. He was poor, born in poverty, died in disgrace, and thought it well worthwhile. I just think that's an honest perception of what the Son of God came to accomplish. And what I want you to take away from this message this morning is this, is that even from that experience that Job had, God brought something amazingly beautiful out of it. He brought a man who could, who could say with all of his heart, I know that my Redeemer lives and then I shall see him upon the earth in the latter day and that for myself. You know, one of the things that, that I thoroughly believe is that God is overruling the enemy's plans in your life and in my life because, because God is working all things together for the good, for his glory and for our good. And that we have a, have a, have a confidence in God that, that can be unshakable. God's overwhelming love for us will ultimately swallow up all suffering. God's overwhelming love for us will ultimately swallow up all suffering. You know, Paul, Paul said it best in Romans chapter 8 when he gives us this long list of, of things that cannot separate us and tribulation and persecution and, and suffering and, and all these things he mentions. And he also mentions demons and angels. They can't separate us. And then to cover it all, he says, everything in all creation, nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. I say that even our disappointments will be cause to praise him. Do you believe that this morning? Embrace that. Even by, by, by faith this morning, embrace that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you today, Lord God, for the story of this man's life, Lord God, and all that he's been through and and all that you brought forth at the end, how he lived another 140 years after this fact, that he lived to the ripe old age of 200, and that you enlarged him and blessed him, and and you gave him, Lord God, a name among the prophets. I pray, Father, that you, oh God, do great things in every person that is hearing me this morning, that in spite of the difficulties and the trials and the afflictions, God, you are working a far greater weight of glory on our behalf. So, Father, give us, Lord God, insight and wisdom and revelation. How to just hold on to you and to trust you, Lord God, with all of our might. In this, you are glorified. And in this, Father God, you delight. Let's all stand together as we close in worship this morning. We bless you, Lord.